Hello and welcome to the Life of Gusto podcast. I'm Augusto Andres. On this episode, my guest is Nineveh Caligari. She's a teacher, author, nonprofit founder, film producer, and CEO. In 2002, along with writer Dave Eggers, she founded 826 Valencia, a San Francisco-based tutoring center and writing lab. Later, as 826 national CEO, she oversaw its expansion to eight additional chapters across the U.S. Currently, she is the CEO of Enterprise for Youth, which provides workplace development and paid internships for San Francisco students. Join us for a conversation about how formative experiences in her high school years helped set her on a path to become an influential leader and powerful advocate for education and students of all ages. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button, and thanks for listening. Nineveh Caligari, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. Thinking about the theme of this podcast and the journeys that people take, you know, you are a teacher, an author, a film producer, CEO. If you had to tell your story about where you started, um, where this all started for you, what would you say? Yeah, it's easy for me. I would say in high school, I um, wanted to have impact. And I realized that the greatest place to have impact was in the classroom. I actually had the opportunity when I was in high school to intern for Nancy Pelosi, um, which was really exciting, but also illuminating. And I just thought, well, government works more slowly and I have a very impatient heart. And I thought that, um, you know, I'm just super worried uh, about opportunity and equity around opportunity. And so I thought that if you, you know, can, can possibly create um, a situation where a certain amount of young people leave your classroom or leave your school with a certain amount of agency and hope that that would actually be more transformative than anything that else I could do. Uh, and I also had a really, really beautiful high school experience. I went to a private school that was completely love-based. It was all girls. And I had this very, very, very strong feeling that the faculty had our backs. And we were put in charge of things. Like I learned everything there. There are two things that I learned at my high school. One is that um, I loved being in multiple generational situations, that I liked that there were different generations working together. And so that drew me to education. Um, and then the other thing that was really important about my high school is that I saw what it should feel like when adults treat young people amazingly well. Mm-hmm. And so it's part of the reason, my high school is truly part of the reason why I'm so incredibly stubborn around what I see happening. Right. That's interesting. I think I remember having these conversations with you when we first met, because um, I had a similar situation when I interned in, in DC my, the summer before my senior year, and I hated it because I was so frustrated about, about Where how- Where did you intern? I interned at the UN um, in DC, the DC office. And I was frustrated because I, you know, I was idealistic and I wanted, I thought everybody was doing the right thing because it was, you know, they were doing things they wanted to do because it was the right thing to do. But in fact, it was like, I'll do this for you if I get this in return. Oh, interesting. Um, you saw the dark side already. They didn't even, <laughs> I, I can't say I saw the dark side in Nancy's office. I just saw, I had got enough of the bureaucracy. You know, though, when I was in her office, I had, I was the mail sorter and the mail mm-hmm. deliverer. That was my job. And one of the things that happened on the rest, that was quite, beautiful is that uh, I received all the mail that San Franciscans wrote to her um, about the Presidio. And at that point, the Presidio was still a military base and we were contemplating sort of 
could it be used for the public? Like what, like, right. and people were writing with all these really strong opinions all over the place. And what was, what's amazing about her is she would, we would categorize her mail. Um, and so she, like, she would quickly get data around what people were writing her about. Can you imagine letters, <laughs> stamps? Okay, and we need to imagine. But um, she uh, would also take her stacks of mail home and read the mail from the constituents at night, oh, wow. Wow. which is really lovely. And now that we see um, that the, you know, that the Presidio is vibrant and, and yeah. filled with community and different agencies and nonprofits and even schools, it's sweet to think about that. Right, that's amazing to see what that's become. One of the things I, I remember I'm hearing you talk about was that you felt like teaching itself was kind of a political act, and you touched on that a little bit. Can you say a little bit more about how, what that means? I think it's incredibly exciting to have the opportunity to help somebody uncover their own talents, share, um, share meaningful uh, you know, lesson plans and content so that mm -hmm. they have a better toolkit. And um, I think it's really meaningful to be able to set young people up for their own success, both for their personal success and prosperity, but I also felt like a big defender of our democracy. Right. And I felt, and I, I don't know any social studies teacher who doesn't feel this way, yeah. but I felt like part of my job was to have young people really love democracy and appreciate how fragile it is. I wouldn't have, I never imagined how fragile ours would become mm -hmm. um, so quickly, but I thought that that was my job is to have them really feel excited and connected around the possibility of participation. So both for their personal agency, but also I, I just, I, I love um, I love it when people participate in our community and our democracy, and I thought that that was part of my job. And you spent was it ten years as a teacher? Almost ten years in yeah. a bunch of different places. Yeah, I started at back east at a school called Cambridge Ridge and Latin, where Patrick Ewing, Matt Damon went to school. Um, and there was a budget crisis, a $2 million budget crisis, and the rules were last in, first out. So I was among the whole cadre of the young teachers. Mm -hmm. And we were all let go. Um, and that was very, very sad because I, I love that school. Mm -hmm. And what happened then is I knew I still didn't know enough about teaching. And I was offered jobs in various places, um, including San Francisco. But what Marin offered that no one else offered is incredible training. So what was really beautiful about being in Marin is that for three years, we had David Sondheim um, mentoring us and really giving us, I already had my master's and my teaching credential, all of that, but a lot of teachers experience an incredible, an incredible amount of isolation when they're first in the classroom and it's a terrible setup. Right. And I experienced the opposite where literally Marin County supported me uh, literally for three years in order for me to really learn how to develop a lesson plan. Mm -hmm. And then what happened in Marin, um, and I felt so grateful for that training, all that attention, because my master's and my teaching credential would not have been enough. And, I, and there, I, the difference between when I started in Marin and when I ended was a massive, um, mm -hmm. was a big, big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that program was pretty amazing. I mean, I had two incredible mentors myself and a few years after that, I, I became a mentor because of my experience with the program. It's too bad though, because that whole system kind of went away and morphed into something else, but we really did have an incredible amount of support for our first three years. Ultimately though, you decided to leave Marin and went to the city. Where did you end up? I wanted to work with a more diverse student body 
Okay. And that's when I came to San Francisco and I helped graduate the first senior class of San Francisco's first charter school. And those, that first year at that school was my hardest teaching year. Mm. We, I think, you know, some charter schools are fabulous and some are not. Uh, and I think in our case, we were really idealistic on that ice. But what I'd like to tell people is like, you know, we were, we were like really trying to do our best, but we were all 26. <laughs> you know, there was no, it wasn't enough. And I could yeah. see that it wasn't enough. And when I was in graduate school, there was this whole notion around small schools. And so right. I went into it thinking, if we just know the youth well, like right. then we can solve, we can solve all of societal issues. And when I got there, I realized like, actually, you know, um, youth need a theater department. Uh, they need music teachers that we didn't have, we didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the amazing things about being at the first charter school, though, with that said, is that the youth had nothing. So when they wanted a soccer team or they wanted a diversity club or they wanted, you know, any, any kind of activity, they had to invent it themselves. And so the youth that graduated in that senior class are just unbelievably pioneering. I'm going to actually work with two of them now and they're, they're, they're astonishingly talented. And part of it is that they, is that in that scrappy atmosphere, mm -hmm. they overcompensated for what was not being offered. Right. But I concluded in my heart that actually I felt like we needed to be offering more because I don't know that many youth that go to school for the academics. They go to school for the social life, but they also go to school for all the beautiful other experiences they can have. Right. We didn't have that. Right. One thing I, I often tell um, my friends who leave teaching, whether it's to, to go into the private sector or to become administrators, is I say, um, please don't ever forget your inner teacher. Um, that sense of, of and what it's like to be in the classroom with a group of 20, 25, 30 or plus kids. What is it about your experience that, that stays with you or that you draw upon still even in your work today? Well, I still, I mean, I still think it was the hardest and the best, you know, I think, um, and also the best preparation for everything else. And so uh, despite the fact that I think teachers are woefully underpaid and that we, ha we expect schools to function with this culture of scarcity, despite those two things that I think are quite serious, um, and, and don't foster an equitable society. Even still, I tell young people to teach because it's an extraordinary experience um, to have an opportunity. You know, when we, were, when we were teaching in Marin, when you were teaching at the big school and I was teaching at the big school, we had to get 147 youth really excited about the Industrial Revolution suddenly. Right. And we had to figure out what it was about the Industrial Revolution that they were going to be able to connect to and how to present it. I mean, it was so mind-blowingly creative and such mm -hmm. a big opportunity. Um, I think that there is a lot of human management and juggling and um, curricular design. I've drawn on so much of it. And in fact, everything that I did in the classroom and the, and the way, um, everything I learned in Marin, everything, all the ways that I was treated, everything, we used all of that to design the H6 programs. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the main cornerstones of A26, one of the nonprofits that I founded, was that we would work at teacher's behest. And I would say to my, my, my teams always, like, we're here to try and make teachers' dreams come true. And we need to make sure that we're doing, A26 does uh, writing and book projects and publishing projects with teachers. And I would say to my team, we need to do 80% of the work. 
Mm -hmm. Like we're not showing up to dump something on teacher's lab. We're showing up to try and make her life easier right. and more joyful. And all of that was because we had, when I was teaching, I had sometimes consultants who would come in who were extremely helpful, like the Project Zero folks. Mm -hmm. It was profound. And then I had other times when consultants came in and I could tell that they really didn't understand what my life was like. And so I do feel that I carry that. And I remember when I transitioned from being in the classroom just starting to run 826 that it shocked me that I could just like make an appointment or go mm. to the restroom. Like so appreciation right. around my, like being able to even control my own schedule is profound. Right now I've been a little bit quieter on the teacher salaries, though I think that right now there's gonna be a moment to really strike around bringing more attention to the fact that low teacher pay is detrimental for everybody. But for a long time, I really held everything about my own experience as a teacher in trying to run the teacher salary project and try and bring attention to how powerful and significant the work is um, and how sophisticated it is. So I carry all of that with me all the time. And in fact, I designed curriculum this summer because of COVID and mm -hmm. I taught myself again. So I was working with 44 youth directly. It was really joyful. So right. I feel really, I feel really, I feel super connected. To You're still a teacher. Yeah, I feel, and, and actually when I introduce myself, I tell people like I'm a public school teacher. It's really the only thing I've ever been trained, trained to do. I say that also to celebrate it. In terms of um, transitioning to a different position where now you're, now you're uh, a leader and you are a, a boss of sorts, um, what, was, what was that like to, to oversee the growth of an organization um, at eight to six, and then to see that kind of expand even, even more to... I'm not sure how much involvement you had in the, the, the when those chap when you opened up chapters across the country. That was that was me and Dave. Yeah, that, that you chapters. Yeah. Well, what happened was um, Dave Eggers, as you know, is a prolific writer, and he would write a book a year. It's really astonishing when you think at yeah. how how much he can produce, um, especially when he's producing at that level. Uh, he would write a book a year. And then he would go on book tours. He's such a funny, he's so funny. Yeah. Um, we've laughed about this a lot, but he would go on book tours and instead of talking about his book, um, he doesn't like anything that seems self-congratulatory. Self he would talk about the young people and how we were getting them excited to write. Thanks. And then people would be really excited about like, oh, you get people excited to write. How do you do that? And he would write my email. <laughs> <laughs> on a piece of picture paper. He had to talk to everybody. So what happened at the beginning is that people came to me and said, I want to learn more, I want to learn more. So I started organizing conferences and these groups would bubble up and around the city. Mm -hmm. And then we started traveling and opening chapters and we established a chapter affiliation agreements. And, you know, yeah, no, I, I opened uh, HE6 once with him and then, and, then, and then seven chapters in eight wow. years. Three chapters in 2005. 2004 was New York, the same year I had a baby. So I had a baby and then another baby. Um, and then the next year, three more chapters, and it just kept on, it just kept on going. There was one year, we had one year of a bye year um, before mm -hmm. DC opened, where I finally, I finally realized, I was like, we actually have to have at least a year where we're Maybe not take a in break. a growth sprint. But yeah. the interest that was coming from everywhere um, was electrifying and exciting. And the way I felt about it is I felt that people were asking me, I have a great orzo recipe with raw shaved, um, Zucchini is just fabulous orzo recipe. And I always would think like, this is like people just asking me for the orzo recipe. recipe. So yeah. we did the obvious thing, which is that we shared everything. 
And then I had to, of course, go back to the, go back to the chapters and say, actually, we need to do a chapter fee because we need to help secure the center of this to make sure that we're holding ourselves all to the highest possible standards. And so we even understand what we're accomplishing. Right. Um, so then I, I had to establish sort of the national norm as well in that office. Mm -hmm. But for a while, I was running H6 National and H6 Valencia because I knew that giving up H6 Valencia was, was going to create great pain because at H6 Valencia, that's where I knew the teachers and I knew the youth. Right. So running just H6 National is a totally different job because you're basically overseeing. I had at one point, you know, all, all the board members around the country, there were 84 board members and I was trying to get 84 board members to row together and to mm -hmm. get aligned around some, some, you know, key priorities. Uh, so I would have to travel around the country and like talk them into it. <laughs> so it's a really different job than running Valencia, which is, which is making teachers dreams come true. But I'll say one thing about the growth. I mean, I could say 5,000 things about the growth, but one thing that was really, really, really important to me and having been a classroom teacher is that we treated teachers like heroes. And we also asked them, and I would say to the teams, like, teachers already know, like, they know what needs to get done. They just need, they just need our help. So we're going to walk into their classroom and ask them what their dreams are and then figure out how to help them. But um, one of the survey questions that we always asked at Valencia and then we asked it around the country is, would you, one, recommend working with H6 to another teacher? And two, would you work with us again? And we always had 100% yes on both. So even if I didn't know the teachers, I would only meet like one or two teachers in Chicago or in Boston or in New York or in Seattle. But as long as we were asking that question, as long as teachers were saying, I would work with you again and I would recommend you, yeah. I was like, you know what, that's actually, that's as good as I can, I can, I can do from where I'm sitting right now. Mm -hmm. trying to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars and keep everybody marching together right. and keep 84 board members happy and the executive directors <laughs> happy. Right. Oh my God. It's a hard, Laura Brief is doing that job now and she's mm -hmm. masterful. That's a hard job. Right. Well, I think your starting point is, is teaching, treating teachers with respect and asking them that question of what, you know, what do we need that you're there to support them as opposed to we've got this curriculum, you're not doing things right. We're going to come in and show you how to do things. And which is, you know, half, more than half of the professional development programs that are out there um, that make more teachers feel small and like they don't know, they don't value what they're, what they're doing or what they, the experience they have. In his TED talk, Dave Eggers credits you with kind of helping eight to six find its footing. Um, and what I, I'm also interested in collaboration. And one question that I have for you is, um, what do you think it was that you, brought to that partnership and what did he bring that helped make you both so successful in what you what you did over such a long period of time too? I've thought about uh, my relationship and our working relationship so frequently so I love getting that question because I don't often get to say what I thought worked so well and it's actually a great source of joy for me. Um, I think that uh, a few things that are very, very powerful. Um, one is that everyone on earth knows that Dave is talented, but one thing that I don't know if they know is that he's literally the hardest working person that I've ever met. Um, so he really is a really inspiring. And I'm also, just to give myself, I'm a hard worker too. So we were, we were good in that way. Um, the other 
part of the relationship that worked so beautifully is um, I remember being a classroom teacher and feeling that the outside world didn't understand my my world and he was and is unapologetically totally and completely in support of teachers his sister and his mother were both teachers and he um you know when we set out to work at a teacher's behest and make teachers dreams come true he meant it as well as i meant it um so having that in common was really powerful i think another thing that i really enjoyed about working with him is that together we would just see obstacles as challenges mm -hmm. and i do think that sometimes obstacles are overwhelming and i think that you know some of the challenges that we face could have overwhelmed us and we're both really very determined to not let that happen so when did the teacher salary project come about was that something you were working on at the same time you were expanding 826? In 2005, when, the, when we were opening three chapters, Dave Eggers and Daniel Malthrop and I, that's when Teachers Have It Easy, the small salaries and big sacrifices right. in America's right. teacher. Right. That came out at that time too. So then we were, we were starting to build a movement mm -hmm. um, and gathering all the best research and all the best stories to present our argument to the world about how serious we thought the consequences were of underpaying teachers. Right. So the teacher salary project was being born at that same time. Mm -hmm. um, so the book came out and then after 826, what happened is I had at some point along, right, right in that moment, seen Inconvenient Truth and then watched my kids compost. And I could mm -hmm. see what that role that that, that that played. And I also realized what happened to me with the book is that people would walk up to me. We were actually really sweet because we were New York Times bestseller, but only for one week on the internet list only, and then it disappeared. <laughs> but what happened is a lot of people would come up to me and say, oh, I bought your book and I gave it to my cousin. She's a teacher. And I was like, no, no. And I would say, thank you. And I would smile and then walk away and think, no, no, no. The teacher doesn't need to read it's that not, book. It's not, right. That's not, like, she knows all those they stories. They know that already. She's <laughs> yeah. like, for all you know, maybe she is bartending on the weekends. Like she already knows that mm -hmm. what's wrong. You know, she already knows what's wrong and what's right about teaching. So I saw Inconvenient Truth and I thought, oh my God, what we need is a movie to yeah. try and create this political will because people truly don't know how sophisticated teaching is. So right. it came from the experience I had. I literally, I literally, I was still, I remember walking in Marin, walking down the hallway and having seen somebody grow like within my classroom and mm -hmm. this is the greatest job like what like what on earth could you want to do except right. for watching somebody and i remember thinking well maybe maybe doctors who heal people mm -hmm. have this level of incredible joy around their work but i was like but not more joy like and right. i couldn't think i remember thinking i couldn't think of anybody else who could possibly be as fulfilled mm -hmm. so i had i had such a rich experience and then I would go to a cocktail party and somebody would say like, oh, you're a teacher, good for you. They make that face. Like, oh. <laughs> um, so I really, I could feel the condescension. And I just thought, you know, people actually don't know how sophisticated my job is. Right. So we need to get these stories out there. So yeah. that was all happening at the same time. So right when I left H26, um, I, you know, I said to Dave Eggers, I was like, you know what? 
the wrong people are reading our book. That was fine. We did a good job, but nobody cares. We need to make a movie. So yeah. I started working on the movie immediately um, mm-hmm. and transitioned right into that. And then once, once the teacher salary project, I think that maybe we were possibly too early, but we did, we took our movie all over the country. Once people weren't, we had 561 community screenings, Microsoft paid for those. Right. We had protests, even people were protesting our yeah. movie to pay teachers more. Like we just had a lot of wonderful episodes, but then mm. the movie, movie wrapped up and then we started working on something called the governor's campaign and we approached all the governors, their wives and their chief of schools or their superintendents or whatever each state calls them when we tried to convince governors to raise raise the wages of their states we got west virginia to raise every single teacher salary by two percent so we were doing all this doing all this doing all this and and it still was i i believe we were too early i even had teachers who were bucking up against us yeah um and now now i think it's really clear i think it's much more clear what we were trying to do mm-hmm. um so in that moment when i wasn't sure how much traction we were going to gain uh with the teacher salary project i ended up working with youth speaks um so for a few years i was supporting arts organizations around the country and uh youth speaks helps young people find their voice and personal agency through spoken word Mm-hmm. Um, and workshops and writing workshops and it's really very very beautiful and what I was doing is helping all the different or there's 64 organizations that were a part of an affiliation and I was helping those organizations sort of build their organizational capacity chops so they could be smarter and have amazingly clear priorities just so that we could make commitments to young people and see those through mm-hmm. And then from there was when I leapt over to starting working in workforce development. When did you start at Enterprise for Youth? So Enterprise came across my desk and I am now, I'm three years into working for Enterprise for Youth, which is a 51-year-old agency that just very simply trains young people to be job ready and then places them in love-based work experiences where they receive support. Um, so the mission is hyper simple. And um, a woman named Gaudi Thatcher decided to found it 51 years ago and she felt that 1969 was really uh, painful. People think like summer of love and everyone was wearing flowers and happy, but she saw right. that yeah. she thinks that at that yeah. time adults were way too authoritarian and people weren't listening to young people. So what she would do is she would ask young people dreams were and document those on index cards and then she would run around San Francisco and make all of her friends hire the young people mm-hmm. and give, give young people early early work experience. Um, she thought that early work experience would create personal agency right. and healing and I think she was right. Yeah. Um, and it's so we still do the exact same thing. My staff has a lot of their time is spent engaging with young people listening to them and then trying to figure out the very best way to uh, place them in the best spot based on their passions and maturity level. And mm-hmm. So it's really very beautiful. And actually I'm more, at three years in, I'm even more excited about workforce development than when I started because I think that it's really critical. Yes. And I think that, I think young people are unbelievable. I've always thought that they were unbelievable. So I find myself at big offices, um, fancy offices telling people like young people are scrappy and talented right. and multilingual and tech native um, 
So we were, for example, you know, we start working with 14 year olds, but Sephora historically only hired 18 and up and we were able to convince uh, human resources and legal oh, wow. at Sephora that 16 year old could, could be amazing. Yeah. And so it's really fun when you get a sexy company like that to see young people as a solution. And also it's a, it's meeting their hiring needs. It's like a win-win for everybody because it's hard to hire entry-level right. positions in these big cities. And so I, I feel like everyone's winning, um, mm -hmm. but we don't just place in retail, we place in government, environmental science, we place at law firms, we place at hospitals. So financial firms, architecture firms. So it, there's a wide range of people who are supporting young people by bringing them into their offices. And it's the thing that once again, that's unbelievable is that you can see even within a summer, a young person in an, in a, in an office of you know, a lot of different sorts and you can actually watch a transformation and they, right. can, they can actually articulate a transformation. Right. This work experience with support is, is just, it's really powerful. I think we have an opportunity to help with pathways. Did you read, by the way, did you read Trevor Noah's book? Um, Point of Crime? Crime. Yeah. I love Trevor Noah and yeah. um, as everyone should. <laughs> but one of the things that he talks about, which I think is a really nice analysis, and I think that people from across the political spectrum can help understand, can understand this. Uh, so as a backdrop, one of the things I love about workforce development is that it's not, it's not political. I think everyone understands right. that people having a chance to be prosperous is, is, is right and fair and smart for community. I mean, it's, it's good on every front and I think mm -hmm. everyone really gets it. And I like that about workforce development. And then the right. other piece is that what he talks about then in the book is he breaks down sort of the like, pull them up by your bootstraps. Um, right. And how that's not, how that's not, that's not real. Mm -hmm. And because wealthy people and successful people speak certain languages, dress certain ways, have codes of conduct right. that are not necessarily explicit. And so he talks about this fishing rod because he was friends with a wealthy kid right. who taught him some technology that he wouldn't have had access to. And mm -hmm. he equates it to a fishing rod. And he's like, you know what? Do you want a person to learn how to fish? Because, yeah. because you like that adage about the self-sufficiency, you actually, you actually need to supply a fishing rod as Give well. Right, right. Like because without the tools. And so I loved that because enterprise, um, the youth are doing the work themselves, right. you know? Yeah, yeah. But but it's not it's not fair to assume uh, that everybody can get an internship with Nancy Pelosi. That's just not fair, right. and I think right. it's absurd to think that that's the case. And right. so there's really cool research. Part of the other thing that I get really excited about is that there's really clear research that if you have three things called an internship before, do you know this? Before they graduate from college, it changes not the salary right after college, but it changes the kind of job that they get. Mm. So that fires me up because then, then it's just, it's very, very clear because right. we also know that we, you know, we throw kids into university settings also without fishing rods. Right. And, and that's very, very challenging. But part of the dynamic is that kids who have access are getting something called internships right. that are often not paid. But then by the time they graduate from senior year, they have this beautiful resume. Right. all teed up 
and that allows them to get a job. That it, so if you have three things called a resume, are far, far, I don't know, it's just like they are able to get a job that has professional development, healthcare, um, professional pathways, promotion opportunities, it totally changes what they get. It opens so many doors. For yeah, so we, have, so we have to continue to do this just right. over and over and over and over again. Right, and that criticism of pulling yourself up from your bootstraps is in, in a way, you know, for kids who don't have access or don't have resources, it becomes kind of a criticism of them, like you're not, yeah. I actually, I actually don't like that expression at all. But I like the way Trevor Noah said, "Well, you know, if you're going to use that expression, then you have to consider the tools right. um, that are missing yeah. before you throw that at people." The other aspect of the podcast is just to talk about the things that people do to enjoy life when you're not working. What are some things that you like to do to relax, have fun? enjoy the Bay Area, San Francisco and the Bay Area? Well, I have to debate with myself whether I love food or my family more. So it's a food, <laughs> family, food family. Like I just, like, Yeah. So, so family wins every time, but that's actually my mental debate of like, <laughs> food is so fun. So there is nothing about food that I don't enjoy. Um, I love the shopping, the cooking. I, I, really, I remember that about you. Do you? I, I, yeah. I can't. Um, when I can't focus, if I'm, if I'm too, uh, if there's too much going on at work and my brain is rattling with all of that and I can't get into a novel um, and the newspaper is depressing me, I'll literally crack open a cookbook and just scan recipes and it's like a way to relax. So there's nothing about food that I don't love, but I love, love, love traveling to eat also. I love, I love hiking, I love being on the beach. I now love gardening, apparently. Um, I love being with my family. I love biking with my family. I love playing games. Um, during COVID, my mom taught us all how to play bridge. So nice. we play also really competitively. So whether it's ping pong, bridge, or other, we also play a dominoes game called Race Horse. And my husband and I is really great. He grew up with a lot of games too. I mean, like my kids know how to play hearts and Race Horse and everything. And my husband and I both share the like play to win. So <laughs> if you would imagine from me. Yeah. So that's how we spend a lot of time. And then I also, I really love, um, I love planning being with friends and gathering people and feeding people. And I also love planning my next trip where can i go next and right. so that's sad because i don't know that we're going to be plan we're going to be traveling for a long long time but hopefully soon um hopefully soon i chair i have traveled in mexico a lot a lot a lot and traveling right. and eating in mexico is really 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 yes. important to me so all those things food family fun and games okay so we're near the end of the episode and i End with a quick fire questionnaire. Just answer whatever comes to the top of your head. Feel free to elaborate if you like, but you do not have to. It's the life of Gusto Quickfire with Nineveh Caligari. Cheese or dessert? Cheese. Wine, beer, cocktails. Beer. What did I just say? Wine, wine. <laughs> did I just say beer? That's so weird. You can change I your answer. I brain fart. Wine. <laughs> um, SF on a sunny day or a foggy day? Both. Nice. Your favorite place for coffee in the city? My bed, where my husband brings it to me every morning at 7 in the morning. I get a oh. latte in bed. How, love how lovely. 20 years. Um, love it. 
Fill in the blank. When I'm not working, you'll find me. Cooking. Anything in particular? Everything. Oh, um, uh, you know, always starting by chopping onions and garlic. And the more, I, I mean, the more ginger, the more cumin, the more um, cilantro, mint, the more cheese, the better. <laughs> Love it. Besides family, one thing you miss about Mexico when you're not there? Oh, well, the, the food. Food. Any dish in particular? The architecture, that's hard. The food and, and just yeah. the just unbelievable beauty of Oaxaca, Campeche, Querétaro. I mean, it's so beautiful. Mm, right, I miss it too. A book that you read recently that you think should be on everyone's bookshelf? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone should read Born a Crime. I think everyone should read The Circle. I also, we just read for my mother-daughter book club, we read Sonia Sotomayor's autobiography, and we think she should be just as iconic mm, as Ruth is. Ruth, as um, cri yeah. Critical, beautiful story. Yeah. Kamala Harris's autobiography, of course. That's nice. the first candidate I gave money to. Um, there's a lot. I'm excited about all those. Great. Okay, this isn't a trick question. Just a little homage to the stores in the 826 centers. Superheroes, spies, or pirates? Superheroes, because everybody's a superhero. Last question, I always end with this. For the listeners out there, do you have uh, a life tip, um, piece of advice, words of wisdom? It can be about work, it doesn't have to be. It can be about cooking, about how to live a, a good life, anything that you want to share. Well, I just read a letter from Warren Buffett today, and he said, marry somebody who is somebody that you'd like to be um, or to become more like. And I just, I'm a big fan of partnership and family and I loved his phrasing. And I just thought that his framing of, you know, get into a partnership with somebody who is somebody that you'd like to be more like. I think that's really beautiful. Great. All right, sounds like a perfect place to end. Thank you, Nineveh. Thank you. She's a superhero and an inspiration. I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who's as passionate and dedicated to education and young people. You'll find Nineveh Caligari on LinkedIn. To learn more about Enterprise for Youth, go to enterpriseforyouth.org. And to find out more about 826 Valencia or other 826 chapters across the US, head to 826national.org. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks for listening. Come back soon for more conversation about finding your way and living a life of gusto. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.